0: Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. During the thick of the holidays, when you're ready for a break or some alone time, there's a bunch more NPR podcasts you should check out. Comedy and pop culture, creative storytelling, and insights into economics and the hidden forces that shape us. Find all our NPR podcasts at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. And enjoy the holidays.
1: <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a New Year's Eve Eve edition of our weekly roundup. Uh, and the new year is what we're talking about today. It may not sound different, but I'm coming to you today from Iowa City, Iowa. And Asma, you're somewhere else as well.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's right. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. And today I'm in Boston, but all week I've been crisscrossing the Granite State, uh, the Granite State being New Hampshire.
1: Cool. And we got two others.
2: Here in D.C., I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor.
0: And I'm Jessica Taylor. I'm a digital political
2: reporter.
1: Cool. So who has New Year's resolutions? (laughs) Anybody?
2: I could jump in, I guess. You know, as the New Yorker uh, in the bunch, uh, I'm always told to look at the bright side here uh, among DCers. I always want to uh, make me feel like I should be more positive. So, okay, I'll try to be more positive, <laughs> whatever.
1: You're a pretty positive guy, from what I know, from what I see.
2: Well, except what like I'm, I'm grumpier than you are. Except except what I'm not. That's but that's okay. why we all balance okay. each other
1: okay. out. It's fine.
0: Yeah. Oh, Who else man. has
1: resolutions?
0: So last year we went on a family vacation around New Year's, and so my sister made us all sit down and verbally talk about these to each other. Uh, I, I can testify that I stuck to none of the resolutions, and I think this year is just there's just no hope. It's not even a point in trying to to go through that process.
1: Uh-huh. I think. What about you, Jessica?
0: I'm going to try to go to yoga more,
3: where no. I can th- not think about politics for a while. I love politics. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But you know, zen out for a little bit. And not, not... bad
2: in a campaign year. Yeah. Good. Exactly. Plus, I could get you to connect more to Hillary Clinton. Apparently.
3: Yeah. I... Wait.
2: What? Wait. Explain. <laughs>
3: Maybe Hillary. She does yoga on the campaign trail. Haven't She'd you read her emails? Yeah.
2: I never read those things. I don't read any of those campaigns. Well, you emails. should at least read Jessica's write-ups of her emails.
3: Oh, come <laughs> on, show. There will I be I more shall. coming I on shall. Thursday. <laughs> That's, it's her uh-huh. little year end present to us. It's the there last day of every month.
1: Cool. All right, first topic up the reason for the season and the reason for our separation today. Me here in Iowa and Uzma in New England. It's all because Iowa and New Hampshire are about to be the focus of the political world for the early part of the new year. Right, Domenico?
2: That's right. Uh, Iowa kicks off February 1st uh, with its caucuses, a very uh, fun process of everyone kind of moving to their own corners and trying to get uh, everyone on board. And then you have New Hampshire, the first in the nation primaries, as they put it,
1: February 9th. Uh, So uh, it
2: feels like uh, we're starting to kick things off, Sam. Yeah.
1: And uh, we have to point out that uh, a caucus and a primary are two very different things, right? They are. (laughs) I uh, spoke with David Yepsen. He's a veteran columnist from the Des Moines Register. He was there for like 34 years. Good person to talk to. He was great. He he is the guy with Iowa Politics. We spoke at the legendary Drake Diner in Des Moines, and he told me actually about the roots of
4: the word caucus. In a caucus, it's a neighborhood meeting. Uh, In fact, the term caucus is thought to be Uh, a Native American term, an Algonquin term for a meeting of tribal leaders. And I it, did not know that. Yeah, so if, if you think about it, it very much is a meeting of meetings of the Democratic tribe and the Republican tribe and the, the local leaders all get together and they talk about issues and who's going to knock on doors.
1: And, and it's a meeting. So like folks get together at these caucus sites and they talk about why their guy should get the votes and why you should pick their person. And on the Democratic side, correct me if I'm wrong, Domenico, uh-huh. if your guy does not get 15 percent right. at that caucus site on the first go round. Then you're up for grabs, and other folks talk to you again try to convince you to go to their side. You got so it. I mean, this is not just the vote. Yeah, there's a
2: 15% threshold. Uh, the key here in the caucus is there's no secret ballot. You know, it's not like we go to the polls and we drop a drop something in a box or hit the optical scan button or pull a lever or whatever you go basically to a gym or to a, li- a library or uh, you know someone's house and everyone kind of gets in their corner you argue it out you talk about who should be on whose side you uh, then everyone kind of gathers now you know Martin O'Malley uh, you know he's gonna have to worry about whether or not he can clear the 15% threshold when it comes to uh, the Democratic side and let's say one or two people go to his corner or or something just shy of of 15%, then when they re-caucus on the second round, if you're not at 15%, then his supporters get to go to somebody else and he will be disqualified in that precinct. And And that's
3: just on the Democratic side. That's the Democratic side. Republicans do it a little differently. Yeah, Because some of them, you still gather at a certain time. And one reason that this is so important is to get these people out is this isn't where you can just go cast an absentee ballot. You can't just go on your lunch break and vote because you have to physically be there between 7 and 9 p.m. And again, this is the middle of winter. You might have something else going on. It really takes a commitment to do this. Um, And Republicans, they'll have their speeches, try to still convince people, but they will, most places still write down who they're voting for, place it So it is box. more
1: secret than the Dems?
3: It is a little bit more in most of them, okay. yes. But, but there's it's still public speeches. It's
2: essentially just a straw poll mm-hmm. where gotcha. they count heads uh, or they fold up a piece of paper and pass it in. So it is a little different. There isn't the 15% threshold.
1: It's more of a, you know, maybe how you'd vote in student government or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the fact that this is a caucus, it means that these candidates have to have a really good ground game and get folks organize and get them to go out the night of Um, (laughs) I asked a few people that I've spoken to this week who has the 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 biggest strongest toughest ground game that they've seen and a lot of folks have been telling me that the three with the strongest ground games are uh, Ted Cruz uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton Does that sound right to you guys?
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially considering the conservative right, the religious right that you have to win. And, you know, a lot of reporters don't make it out of the Des Moines bubble. Uh, But if you go four hours west to Sioux City and all the way up to the South Dakota border in places like Rock Rapids and Orange is where you'll find and measure the depth of someone like Ted Cruz's devotion, uh, where you'll have lots of evangelical voters show up. And that's where Ted Cruz is really turning out a lot of folks. Um, Donald Trump has been trying to get on board and set up an organization in the state. They've been much better than they were in September and about October. They started to ramp it up a little bit. But Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, for sure, on the Democratic side, uh, have very strong turnout operations for very different reasons. I mean, Hillary Clinton has the money. She's got the machine. She's done it before. She lost before, which helps you to not repeat the same mistakes. And Bernie Sanders has a lot of that grassroots support of just, you know, Iowa was started as a caucus as an anti-war state. Exactly. White liberals, old white, older white liberals. And Bernie Sanders is getting those older white liberals and he's getting younger white liberals. And I must say,
1: I have seen more Sanders bumper stickers and signs across the state than, than for any other candidate. And I've driven across the whole state this week. I mean, always
0: remember that. I think that they're very vocal and and passionate. They're very easy to be found. But with Hillary Clinton, I think one thing that's interesting that I would not want to diminish, because I think I heard this a lot up in New Hampshire as well, is that, you know, she is a. A candidate who has done this before. She is highly experienced, and she has an extremely effective and efficient machine. Um, yeah. And, and, and even though she ha- she did not win in Iowa, um, I think she remains. is mm-hmm. she is a candidate to learn from her from her mistakes. Yeah. So think, you know, Trump seems oh, to ahead, be the,
3: Trump seems to be the big variable here. You know, some people will say, "Oh, you just can't see his ground game yet." Like it's there. He's putting in so much money, and you know, he does have as his top Iowa strategist the guy who ran Rick Santorum's campaign four years ago, who was sort of the surprise Iowa winner getting people out.
1: So we do have some tape of Trump seeming to uh, take a more, I guess, urgent tone and asking people to get out there on caucus night for him.
4: The most important thing I can tell you is this. It starts on February 1st. There are so many people back here that say that, you know, Trump gets the biggest rallies by far. But we don't know if those people are going to go caucus. We don't know where they're going to be. We think they're going to sit home and we this and we that. And they all say, well, I agree that if they actually went out, Trump would win easily, Iowa. And that's I
1: mean, the question. Will they come out?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't think that that's something that is necessarily unique to Iowa. I heard a very similar message in New Hampshire. But I think this idea of asking voters to actually go out and vote in his stump speech is... Is somewhat of a, a new line. I, I think traditionally we heard Donald Trump often begin his speeches by giving you kind of a rundown of the, the latest poll numbers. When I heard him on Monday night, the, he began his speech and he ended his speech asking people to go out and vote. Um, we and he got one a, of the
1: dates wrong, right? Yeah.
0: And he, he actually struggled to get the date right one of the first times he mentioned it. I,
4: I just finished by saying this. It's so important that on February 8th,
1: So
0: so you can't hear it fully, but the the crowd actually corrected him and yelled back, you know, February 9th. And I don't think anybody was upset with it. like when the rock star
1: goes to, like, Ohio and says, hello, Miami.
2: (laughs) You have to realize that we're a month out. So of course all of their stump speeches are gonna to change to try to get people to go yeah. to the polls. Now it's yeah. gonna become action oriented. Yeah. I mean we and, have seen I mean, him on, ramping
3: up more lately and he said this week that you know he is gonna start spending that's the fascinating thing. He spent so little compared, to, you know, what Jeb Bush has been spending in ads that really haven't paid off and things. He says now he said last night he'll spend two million dollars a week um, you know, on ads. And, you know, we'll see how much maybe that – because maybe some of that goes into the ground game and to, you know, more things. But I think his ads will be one of the most fascinating things to watch. You know, are yeah, they I'm clips sure. from his rallies or is it where he's going to maybe clips explain more apprentice. about his his policies? <laughs> is he going to go, you know, just scorched earth against, you know, the candidate he hates most that week because
0: it kind of yeah. seems to change. Yeah. Wait, guys, so real quick, just I didn't realize it was okay. – it's two million a week. Yeah. I didn't realize it was a week on well, I mean, his campaign, a though, a lot of
2: money. But his campaign has said that essentially they're keeping that in reserve until uh, somebody attacks him and they anticipate
1: uh-huh. that he's going to be attacked and that when he's attacked, he'll punch back hard. Let's talk New Hampshire for a bit. Uh, the primary in that state is much simpler than Iowa. Who wants to explain the difference for us? I,
0: I mean, it's it's a simple primary. I mean, it's in the you sense, just,
1: vote. just <laughs>
0: you just go up, you show up, you vote. And, and on top of that, I mean, it's even easier in, in some ways because there are many people who are undeclared voters here, meaning basically they, they don't identify as a Democrat or a Republican. You can pick and choose who you want to subscribe to on a particular day.
2: I mean, the, the major point about New Hampshire is that it's an open primary primary, and it has one of the largest groups of independents in the country. More than 40% of the people in the state see themselves or declare themselves as undeclared or as independents. And what that means is that what usually happens is there's some measure of that middle group of moderates who might, you know, vote in a Republican primary or might vote in a Democratic primary, but depending on which one or which candidate, they would cross over and vote. And that slice of independence winds up making New Hampshire a more, quote unquote, establishment state. And also totally. somewhat mm-hmm. more representative
3: yeah. of the rest of the country in a way.
2: But yeah, it is a swing state in addition I to think it that. Is. that is- it's
0: totally true, and one of the things that I, you know, hear from people sometimes is that New Hampshire picks winners. Iowa picks corn. You know, that's sort of the joke <laughs> that they like to say there. But
1: they picked Obama. But I guess amongst we'll the Republicans. Yeah, I'm talking about the Republican
2: For Democrats, certainly, Iowa's been a launchpad. Uh, yeah. But if you look at Iowa's track record on the Republican side, uh, it's only picked three of the last seven or eight yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, presidents. Or I mean, uh, New Hampshire's Trump had a fairly,
0: um, a fairly solid track record. Yeah. Uh, and so Donald Trump's been leading in the polls in New Hampshire for quite some time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big question is going to be whether or not Donald Trump can sustain that over the Mm -hmm. next month, because these things do change and can change quickly. The other thing to watch here is who winds up being the top establishment pick. It's not going to be Donald Trump. It's going to be somebody like uh, Marco Rubio, John Kasich or Chris Christie, Jeb Bush. Among those four, whoever takes the top spot among them is where people are looking to whether or not they will actually become the potential nominee.
0: And, and, guys, one other important uh, thing that I wanted to mention about New Hampshire is that on Monday, former President Bill Clinton is going to be coming to New Hampshire to campaign for his wife.
2: The big dog is back. The big dog.
0: <laughs> I mean, he was one of
3: Democrats' best assets on the campaign trail in past years and stuff, too. Yeah. So, I mean, hey. he is he's a good asset for his wife and sort of firing up that Democratic base.
2: Even Mitt Romney said in 2012 that when Bill Clinton says nice things about you, you get a bump. So he's someone who can rally a lot of those – new hampshire democrats who voted for him where he was dubbed the comeback kid right. and mm-hmm. certainly the south is going to be a big deal in democratic primaries and you know he can appeal to blue collar white voters in a way that maybe his his wife uh, and barack obama haven't been able to
1: i mean of course whenever bill clinton comes back on the stage you could end up talking about previous things that he's done
3: that's exactly what donald trump brought up this week <laughs> you're saying he put out a flurry of tweets saying you know Bill Clinton's history of sexism and referring to, you know, allegations of affairs and the Monica Lewinsky scandal and different things, too. But I mean, and, but then Trump, of course, who um, has admitted to his own affair, even admitted last night that, you know, this stuff, his own indiscretions could be fair game as well, too.
2: But look, Bill Clinton's past, of course, is going to be fair game, as are any of the campaign, you know, principals or spouses. But whether or not it's going to make much of a difference, I'm very doubtful because, you know, people know his history, they know the Clinton. History, you know, if you liked him, then you're going to overlook it and talk about the Clinton economy of the 90s. And if you don't like him, then you're going to think it's a big deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the other thing to talk about this week is the U.S. Senate. We've been talking about the presidential race for a couple of months now, but control of the Senate is also at stake in 2016. And Jessica, you've been covering this. Why is this a big deal?
3: Well, it's a big deal because control is very much on the line. So Republicans just picked back up control of the Senate after several years of trying to get it back in these last elections. And now that was a very good cycle for Republicans. Certainly it's a midterm year where they do better than in presidential years, but they also were defending uh, far less seats. Last time Democrats were defending 21 seats while Republicans just had 15 up. Now this time it's the mirror image of that. Republicans are defending 24 seats compared just 10 for Democrats. Now, remember, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. And th- these were seats that they won in 2010, which was a great year for uh, Republicans. They took back the House. You saw the rise of the Tea Party and you th- these senators in some of these blue states were able to win. And now you're facing a much different electorate. It's not a midterm electorate. It's a presidential electorate that favors Democrats more. And they've got to sort of campaign on what is going to be more hostile
0: territory. I think, though, part of what will be at stake, and I'd be curious to see what plays out, is that when we have the presidential election, at, I mean, people are going to be yeah. selecting a presidential candidate at the same time that they will be voting for a senator. And yeah. we've seen so much debate this year around sort of both what the Democrats have to say and what the Republicans have to say that I wonder how some of the the conversations around the presidential candidates could filter down.
3: I mean, that's Senate. exactly I've been talking to a lot of Republicans this week and we'll have a story coming out uh, just on this, how they're so worried that if Trump is the nominee, if Cruz yeah, even is the nominee. That they're very worried about the top of the ticket in states like Florida, like. So, who would they Ohio. want to win? most of them want Rubio, really i mean you know you won't hear a lot of people say that on the record um of course but you know they see him sort of as this he has the barack obama charisma that helped them and just
2: raw numbers right i mean he he has he has winds up with a broader appeal to hispanics Mm -hmm. than any of the candidates when you look at polling and what's key about this is republicans have worked so hard for the past decade to win governor's races so that they could control redistricting they've worked very hard to take over the House. They won back the Senate in 2014. If they were to hold the Senate and have a president who was a Republican, they would control the entire structure. Now, if they wind up with a a nominee who's too far to the right as they see it, like a Cruz or a Trump, then you're looking at Florida, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. Illinois, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, maybe even Ohio. You know, maybe they hold Nevada. And that gives Democrats the Senate with a Democratic president. So
1: In terms of policy, if the Senate flips, what big policy changes could we expect? If I
3: mean, I think you'd see a lot of gridlock. Really, I mean, this coming year is a presidential year, of course, and they don't get a lot done typically. And Congress doesn't do a lot; they're not in session very often. You know, I think that um, you know you wouldn't see certainly more. Obamacare uh, repeals and things too in the Senate, you wouldn't do that. If it flows back to there, it would be harder to get through any sort of, uh, you know, government funding
0: measure. I mean, any would sort it not debt- be sort of back to where we were? I mean, where it we had be. the Senate passing immigration reform, but then immigration reform. Exactly. You'd have a lot of house. things
3: yeah. originating maybe in the Senate. There are Democratic priorities dying in the House or things that Republicans want to do in the House dying in the Senate. And, you know, we're back at gridlock.
2: If you wind up, though, with a Democratic Senate, you won't have Republicans in the House feeling like they can push through anything they want and then the republican senate will take it up and they can you know essentially say congress is against the president the president doesn't want to compromise this puts a lot more pressure on the Republican-controlled House that will likely still remain Republican-controlled uh, if there were to be—we're de- you know, looking at, two. if Democrats win back the Senate, you're also probably looking at a Democratic president. So right. you would wind up with a Democrat in the White House, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and more pressure back on the Republican House, which definitely hurts the national right. agenda for Republicans.
0: You know, for the House, I mean, yeah. But does the gap it not hurt the to... agenda, though, in, in general? Though? I mean, because, Domenico, that kind of feels like deja vu.
2: Yeah, well, look, it is always deja vu, especially in the Senate, where you have 60 <laughs> votes essentially to do a Anything, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw Barack Obama get most of what he got done because he had that 60th vote in the Senate. Mm-hmm. He got health care through because of that. But you know, these things move incrementally. They move very slowly back to a position, uh, you know, that moves things in a direction that one party controls the agenda. If you had Republicans at 54 votes where they are now, and they picked up a few more seats, and then another cycle down the line picked up a few more seats, now suddenly they are in firm control with 60 votes, and you have. Have a president to then push through their agenda. These things take time, but that's why Democrats are
1: hopeful that they can move things back to something closer to fifty-fifty. 50. Uh, okay, good luck, senators. Uh, <laughs> now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Uh, who's going first? Osma?
0: So I am going to bring my can't-let-it-go from the trail uh, where I was with Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. I was in Portsmouth. And um, she was doing this town hall there, and about three of the questions she took out of the group came from little kids. And, uh, you know, she's been doing this a lot. I think we mentioned something in the podcast the other week about a question that she was asked on the campaign trail from a little kid about getting bullied, right? And it's sort of so opportune. I think people asked that time, and certainly we had questions after the most recent incident as well. You know, are these kids plants? Are they really legit? Um, you know, is, is Hillary Clinton screening these questions? So um, I want you to take a listen to the question that was asked uh, to her by this little girl. Her name was Ella Briggs, and uh, she's seven years old, a second grader. Hi, I'm Ella. Um, I think that there's a lot of people who don't have enough money for college and um, schools and that kind of stuff,
3: so how can we help that? It's a very good question, Ella.
1: Plant.
0: Plant. No, So plant. what I mean, what, what do you guys think? I mean that that's
3: what you She's a very precocious little girl. And clearly
1: engaged <laughs> parents, let's be honest. I mean, well, also like I mean, it's I always d- girls though, right? Like it's always girls.
3: No, no, I think at that this says event, something. At this event
0: there were two little boys that also raised their hand oh, and okay, asked questions okay. at Hillary and, and so I think the sort of the explanation that Hillary Clinton gives in selecting questions from children is that she feels like this election is about the future. It's about their generation, and so she enjoys taking questions and from she's children. Grandmother. Right. Don't forget, um, this is grandma. Thing. So, in a nutshell, um, afterwards, I went up to the Clinton campaign. I asked them, you know, do you pre screen questions? Is there any sort of filtering process? They insisted that no, there's not. And, and anyhow, jump ahead. I'm uh, at my hotel working on a story. And lo and behold, I happen to bump in to Ella and her family. We got to talking, and she really is a smart, clever little kid who's clearly heard a lot of this type of conversation around her before. Both of her parents are high school teachers, uh, and I asked her why she's such a fan of Hillary Clinton, and this is what she said. I've heard that
2: she um, wants little children's health care to be awesome, and I've heard that she wants poor people to get more money so they can have...
3: I feel like we're going to see Ella on the ballot one day in about like 20 years. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, Demo- Democrats always need young voters, but you know, she's she's still too young to vote next time, but I guess you have to keep your eye on her.
0: I asked her parents, you know, are they Hillary Clinton supporters? Mom is, dad says he's leaning towards Bernie Sanders. And so I asked her what she thought about Bernie Sanders, and she told me the only thing she knows is that he is the older individual <laughs> that, uh, that might be what, what you know some, Ella throwing shade. some voters who can vote
1: might think of him but, you know. so Jessica what can you not let go this week
3: So I've been listening to a lot of these Donald Trump rallies, and there was one last statement that he made last night in Iowa that sort of really stuck out at me. In Iowa, if you want to be successful in the caucuses, you have to win the evangelical vote. And this is a statement that he made that sort of seemed like a little bit of a coded attack against Ted Cruz, who is leading him in some polls there now. So I think we have the clip here.
4: you got to remember, in all fairness, to the best of my knowledge, not too many evangelicals come out of Cuba. Okay, just remember that.
3: Okay, just remember. So, I mean, it just really isn't um, grounded in fact or anything it doesn't seem like. And, you know, I just did a quick Google search this morning, you know, Cuba evangelicals, and there's a lot of stories about how the number of evangelicals there is growing. And, you know, the whole point of... Evangelicism is to convert people, so it shouldn't matter where they come from.
2: That actually might be why Donald Trump's done so well with evangelicals early on, because not that many evangelicals come out of Queens either. Speaking as yeah. someone who's from Queens, <laughs> and I can tell you that they're probably giving him a look, saying, "All right, maybe we can win this guy over." You know?
3: Right, right, and you know he.
1: But like, what is he really trying to do? Because wouldn't the better way to make inroads with this community be to pray in public or throw out some scriptures? Well, or he's talk been about asked, he asked he to do all of that. He's
3: been asked. Do, he do all that? Of that? He doesn't. I mean, he was asked, you know, his favorite book of the Bible. He demurred. Even he was asked to choose between his favorite New Testament. I mean, you got Just Testament. Say you Revelation. Two choices. Two choices there. As <laughs>
1: someone who was raised evangelical, you can't trick us. <laughs> like you can't fake the funk on right. that. Right? No, thing. I was too yeah. Sam,
3: and that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, I think that's why sort of you know my meter went up. I was like, this is not anything you would hear in an evangelical church.
1: All right. Uh, So, Domenico, what could you not let go this week?
2: Well, Donald Trump, since we're talking about Donald Trump, he continues to talk about everybody else, and he was talking about Bill Clinton this week. He started to talk about his dalliances in the past and how that's fair game. Well, here's the thing. There was a time when Republicans... Actually liked Bill Clinton uh, not that long ago. It was just the last presidential election, and I think we have a clip from the Daily Show on that.
4: Under Clinton, you had a president who was willing to compromise. Bill Clinton, who you depict in your book, yes, he was a flexible guy. He learned how to compromise with conservatives to get things done. If he's willing to work with us, as Bill Clinton did after the 1994 elections, to pass things like welfare reform, trade agreements, and the like, we'll certainly w- work with him. That's right. <laughs> Republican darling
3: Bill Clinton. (laughs) Now, some of you may be too young to remember the feel-good 1990s,
4: when a universally respected President Clinton reigned over an eight-year bipartisan love fest.
2: Well, Trevor Noah's great, but, you know, there's only one Jon Stewart, right? You heard in that clip Rudy Giuliani, John Cornyn, among other Republicans, all praising Bill Clinton during the 2012 election to, as a way to hit Barack Obama to say, boy, if we only had a president like Bill Clinton again, uh, you know, I it's just it's just amazing how these things just come around. I guess it's presidents are short term
0: memories. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean,
2: it's like presidents are like uh, wine, I guess, or something, you know, better the further away from their presidencies. I don't know. <laughs>
1: I actually have two things that I can't let go this week. Um, Maybe they both make the cut, maybe they don't, uh, (laughs) but I'm going to just go there. First, hashtag poor Martin. um, Martin (laughs) O'Malley has had two solo sightings this week, one documented by our colleague Sarah McCammon, who was traveling across the country this week, saw O'Malley in the same airport she was. He was literally all by himself uh, in a busy airport and was recognized by only two people, one of whom was a campaign journalist. She put a photo up on her Facebook of Martin O'Malley in his nice suit, looking handsome as he always does, just by himself. It was real sad. Then... A few days later, he was in a small town only like 75 miles west of where I am doing this event. There was some snow this week. Uh, he says that's the reason why this happened, but uh, honestly, it's just par for the course for Martin. One person shows up, one person shows up, um, and Martin yeah. just talks to that guy for a while. That's um, weird. You feel really bad for Martin O'Malley. He just, but in some ways, that's so respectable
0: that he, you know, sp- at the time, talking to that one guy. <laughs> every voter is important, but the, every voter is important. But the fascinating
3: thing about this story is, then people talked. There was another one reporter, I think, there that made it there and talked with this guy, and he's still not sold on Martin O'Malley. <laughs> <laughs> <Like, you> what
1: <know, laughs> does Martin have to do? That does Martin have to go bigger. watch this dude's car and mow his lawn <laughs> to get a vote? Well, he's got somebody a, help Martin out, you
2: know. But. You, Candidates, I, you know, I remember traveling in 2008 and 2012, and you wind up seeing – it's kind of weird at the Des Moines airport because you do wind up seeing these candidates just kind of hanging out there with a very small entourage. Uh, and you know, it's, it's kind of strange because you're not usually that close to people who are running in the campaign. But for one person to show up at an event, just one, that tells you a whole lot more
1: about his candidacy. And it than, wasn't just the snow because yeah, I was up yeah. here in Iowa, and I was driving in that snow. And it was not like the blizzard of all blizzards. I
0: I mean, mean, and I was covering—I was going to say—I was covering Hillary Clinton in snow, and it was not great weather. I mean, it was snowy; the roads were slick, and. There were lines out the door of the church. Yeah, I mean these yeah. people who
3: go to the Bernie Sanders rally is very passionate. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. I mean these people, they would brave the snow for this. I, you know, I, yeah. I, apparently this one guy was the only one who would brave yes. the snow for Martin O'Malley.
1: So my my second can't let it go. Is that okay? It'll be really quick. I promise. There's That's
2: another really one. Good. There's another. I thought, I thought that was two. I thought two. I thought that, Three, that was two.
3: Really. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: that was two of the same thing with Martin. This oh. is diff- this is Aretha Franklin, the the Queen. Uh, oh, so who watched the Kennedy Center Honors?
0: I didn't, but I saw this clip. This clip was quite amazing. Yeah, so
1: Carole Kane, famous songwriter, was honored at the Kennedy Center Honors. Uh, She wrote the song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Aretha Franklin came on stage to perform the song, walks on stage in this, like, full fur coat, looking regal as she does. Before she even starts to sing or perform, Obama is literally wiping away tears from his eyes. So Aretha sits down to play the piano as she sings and then Carol Keene like loses it and is like, oh my gosh, she's going to play the piano too? It's amazing. So she goes into this song. It's beautiful and epic and Aretha Franklin's voice has not sounded this good in probably 15 years. But she is singing this song. Uh, Halfway through, she gets up, walks up towards her uh, like background singers and starts to pull the fur coat off. and then raises her arms and is singing to the raptors and at this point George Lucas is uh, I'm like in the crowd catching the spirit Carol King is about to fall over the banister Obama and Michelle are up on their feet like they're in church I mean it is just spiritual like it was my favorite moment of this week probably this month and if there was any doubt the queen is still on the throne Aretha Franklin can bring it Y'all got to watch this <laughs> clip though it's so perfect it's so perfect. It's like it made me be like, "Who was Adele? who what is that, huh? Who? Adele who? <laughs> Happy holidays, Sam.'m I'm glad I'm glad that that made you feel good. It did. <laughs> so that's all I got. That's it. Couldn't let it go. All right. That is all the time we have for this week. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. Let us know if you like the show. Find us on Twitter and catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter.
0: I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and politics. Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Jessica Taylor, a digital political
2: reporter.
1: All right. We'll see you next year on the NPR Politics Podcast.